Good morning, church. It's great to be with you. Thank you so much, Bonnie, Jenny, and all those that are uh, serving in our children's and youth ministry to make uh, the experiences possible uh, for our kids and our youth to be able to have that encounter with Jesus that we celebrated and focused on in the Lord's Supper. I just think it's powerful. Thank you for that. Um, relationships are where it happens, right? Literally, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, for all of eternity, relationship is where life has always happened. And, and we've been doing this study of experiencing and looking at what does it look like when God is at the center of human relationships. It doesn't just bless us and fulfill us. It creates an impact that goes on for generations to come after us that we'll never see or know until Jesus comes back. And we're exploring these relationships through this little short story in the book of Ruth. And we're looking at these relationships of a few characters that God has so put his heart into that they spill out in the lives of other people. And we've seen kind of act one of the story the first week we saw this character this hesed character this beyond um, all expectation character in the book of uh, in the in the character of Ruth and how she stuck with her mother-in-law last week we saw the kind of hesed beyond the boundaries and beyond expectations character of Boaz and the kindness that he showed to her and now we move into act three of the four in the drama here in the book of Ruth. So if you've got your Bibles or your devices, look at Ruth chapter 3. <clears throat> We're going to look at this scene and this chapter in the story. This is the word of the Lord, Ruth chapter 3. One day Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you, where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you've worked, is a relative of ours. And tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your clothes, and then go down to the threshing floor. But don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he's lying, and then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down on the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man, and he turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I'm your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family." The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you sowed earlier. You've not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until the morning. So she laid his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And she said, he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? 
She told him everything Boaz had done for her. And she added, he gave me this, these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You all know that since we were little, one of the most difficult times in that 24 hours we, we live each day is actually the time we call the night. For all of us, there are, there are struggles and it starts pretty early on. When we're little, there are the monsters under the bed and in the closet. I still remember in the room I grew up in, my mom thought it was great to have on the curtains these clowns with balloons all over them. Now, clowns sound fun, <laughs> but I'm telling you, they moved and did stuff at night. <laughs> Nighttime kind of terrifies us when we're little. And then, then we go into our teenage and early college years, and those are the times when we start watching these crazy horror, horror films. And of course, all the slashers come out at night. But then we grow up. And maybe we grow out of our childhood fears at the same time, I think our struggle with the night matures as well. Because we find ourselves battling uncertainties and ambiguities and struggles in the night. Especially if you struggle with sleeping from time to time, you know this is a terrible time to have your mind racing and thinking about all those things that we can't fix or figure out. All that time in the night to struggle with the frustrations or the failures of the day. There's something about the night that we wrestle with and we struggle with, and we see that here in the story too. It's a fitting theme to think about night in the beginning of this one because the setting has changed. Uh, the, the whole backdrop of this story has changed as we move from Act 2 to Act 3 of the story. We're not any longer in the brightness of the day. We're in the dark dead of night. Uh, no longer do we have kind of the community and the companions all around. I love the way one writer puts it. There are no farmhands or fair maidens here in this story. No, you have kind of the foggy silence of a man and a woman alone lying down on the ground underneath the stars. And if you got close enough, you might even smell the mixture in the air, the perfume of a bath in the evening and also the sweat of a hard work in the day. All of that mingling together and then just as the light of dawn breaks, you see a woman quietly walking away, knocking the straw off of her dress and her shoulder when she does. And We're in the nighttime in this story for most of it. And it's fitting we know this in Scripture. We also know this in all sorts of metaphors and images in our lives too, right? Night is not just a time in a 24-hour span. It is also a symbol. Night is a symbol for those times in our lives where we can't see exactly where it is we're going or what's happening next. We have nighttime seasons in our lives, and that's true in every aspect of our life, and it's true in our relationships too. There are times we don't know where things are headed. We don't know what's coming up next. We don't know what to do. We're uncertain and we're struggling with those things, those nighttime moments in our lives. So we come to God in moments of scripture like this asking for his wisdom. How does it show up in relationships? And we find it here in the story of the night with Boaz and with Ruth. And I'll be honest with you, 
People have been trying to figure this part of the story out for centuries. They've been wrestling with what exactly it is that has happened here in this place. You show the image of this. If you're like me, sometimes I get the picture where you're talking about the threshing floor and where they're doing the farming and all that. I picture this little corner inside of a barn. That's not what a threshing floor looked like or was. This is uh, the ruins of an actual threshing floor not far from where the setting of this story is in Bethlehem. It's a big outdoor open space. So when you're picturing this time in the night, they're not in the barn in the corner. They're outside lying down on the ground underneath the stars. And there are things that people have struggled with in the story for a long time, the rabbis and the scholars and followers of Jesus as we've read it. To start with, it seems pretty odd that Naomi seems to be plotting and scheming in some pretty strange ways. It feels like she's saying, okay, go get kind of dolled up and put on the perfume and then go kind of lay down at night with this single guy that's older than you. It just feels a little strange. What do we do with that part of the story? And the other thing that makes it even more a bit uncertain and and strange is the language, especially in the Hebrew that comes out. There's a couple things about this. First of all, the language is intentionally ambiguous. Now, all the scholars recognize this, folks that know the Hebrew really well recognize it. You can feel it a little bit in the English, but even more so in the Hebrew, it's intentionally ambiguous. There's several places. Let's just give a couple of examples here. Uh, first of all, it refers in a generic way in verse 8. It doesn't talk about Ruth and Boaz. It says uh, that a man is out there in the night, and he kind of rolls over and looks over, and behold a woman is what it says literally in Hebrew. Behold a woman. There's a man and there's a woman. It kind of reminds us how the whole story began, by the way. It says in verse 1, it just so happened there was a time of famine, and there was a man And a woman there in the land. And it starts with this kind of ambiguity and then they start filling it in. Heightens the moment where in verse 9 he says, who is it that's here? We don't know. There's a man and there's a woman there on the ground at night. You feel the ambiguity. There's also kind of intentional ambiguity about what exactly it is that he's eating and and drinking here. It says when his heart was merry (laughs) after eating and drinking. But we don't quite know whether his heart was merry and he was in good spirits, literally. (laughs) Because about half the time in the Bible, that's like good spirits, like he's drunk a whole lot. Uh, We see this in the beginning of the book of Esther, chapter 1, right? Where the Persian king, his heart is merry with wine. And then he tries to parade his wife in front of his friends. And you see Absalom in a dark moment in their family history, he wants to take his brother out. And so what does he do? He says, wait until his heart is merry with wine, and then you go kill him. But we don't quite know if that's what's going on here, because about half the time that language is used, it's just eating and drinking. And it's almost as if the writer of Scripture is telling it very much like movie directors will do sometimes, where you will hear the conversation going on, you'll get a sense of what's going on in the scene, but the camera is not brought into the place where they are. We kind of know, but we're not invited to see what's going on exactly on the threshing floor. The thing that makes it a little bit more difficult, again, people have wrestled with this for ages, is there is intentionally provocative language in here. Now, I won't go into a lot of detail here, but it's in there in the Hebrew. And give you one example of this. There are others. One example, the main one, is it says she comes in and uncovers his feet. 
The only way to say this, I'll just say it this way, is that sometimes feet is feet and sometimes feet is not feet in the Old Testament. <laughs> For example, in the call of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, it says, these seraphim are there and with two wings they cover their eyes, their faces, and with two they cover their feet, which is a way of being uh, having discretion and modesty before the throne of God. That's what it's talking about. And we literally don't know whether it's feet or feet in this story. And people have debated this and they've wrestled with what exactly is going on in the threshing room floor. Well, here's a couple things that I think people have done that, that for me, I think about two ditches. I talk about that a lot. Some, maybe some things we can avoid in this. On the one hand, people, in order to, how many times do we do this? We feel like we need to rescue God and we need to rescue the Bible, so we sanitize the story. We want to clean out all the messy details, and so some people will read this in a way where there's absolutely nothing questionable at all and nothing out of the ordinary happening. Okay, I have a daughter I'm just saying, I'm not going to tell her, hey, you want good kind of security for your future? Go find an older guy and lay down on the ground under the stars at night next to him. Whatever's happening that isn't just ordinary, wasn't then, wouldn't be now. Let's not sanitize it. The people in the Bible aren't superheroes. It's okay they're messy and broken a little bit, and sometimes the story is that way, as we've seen already all along. Let's not sanitize it. At the same time, Boy, you know this is true, and scholars will do this too. They love to scandalize it. And they'll find lurid details in every moment of the story, and they will kind of weave that into every character's action in the story, that it is seedy and all sorts of things, and it is all in self-interest. Actually, there is a book out there, and I actually like the book, like the author, but there's a section in the book where a very, very popular Christian book will, will actually say this is the model for every woman. If you, if you want to know how to be a woman of God, you go seduce your man. I kid you not. It's in a Christian book. Well, let's not, let's not try to sanitize it. Let's not scandalize it. What is it that's going on here? I don't know if we'll answer all of those questions, but one of the things I appreciate, and don't you, I appreciate the fact that there is tension and complexity in the story. I actually appreciate that. It's not all neat and tidy. Honestly, I need a God that can work in a world like that because most of our relationships have some tension and complexity to them, do they not? And what we see in this story is that the God that we worship is a real God working with real people in real human circumstances. He, he doesn't run away from the tension and the complexity of human life. Again, think about how the last chapter ended. I'm not advocating everything Naomi does here, but she is desperate. Because she's gotten provision, because they're harvesting, but it says this little hint, and every little word in this short story matters, the hint at the end of chapter 2 is the barley and wheat harvests are ending. So she's been able to go, and Ruth's been picking the stuff up off the ground, but the harvest is ending. What are we going to do now? And so, ladies, as you know this, sometimes guys will kind of be thinking stuff, or, but they don't do anything, and so there's this kind of little bit of Chemistry we talked about last week in chapter 2, but for weeks after weeks after weeks, Boaz does nothing. <laughs> so Naomi takes the initiative and says, we're going to go do something here. And there's tension and there's complexity in the story, right? 
Well, let's think about a couple things that are helpful as we work through this. First of all, let's understand that the preparation Ruth goes through is not a preparation for a sultry night out on the town. Unfortunately, some of the translations actually read that way. If you were following me and you have an NIV, you might notice that I skipped a word when I read it because it's not in the Hebrew. Here's the way the NIV describes it, kind of feeding into some of these visions of this text. In verse 3, the NIV says, wash, put on perfume, and put on your best clothes. The word best is not there. And perfume is not literally there that way. Here's literally what it says. It says, bathe, put on anointing oils, and put on your clothes. By the way, rather normal clothes. The ordinariness of the clothes. This is not Ruth dressing up for her prom. <laughs> this isn't a fancy night out of the town. She says, take a bath, put on your anointing oils that everybody did every day, and put on your ordinary clothes. By the way, there's at least one other place in Scripture where these exact words are used in this exact order, and it's not about a sultry evening. Maybe you've heard the story in 2 Samuel 12 where David is wrestling in one of the darkest times of his life whether his son is going to live or die. And he's begging God, and he's begging God, and he's begging God, and he's begging God, and then the son dies. You know what it says after this? He bathed, put on anointing oils, and put on his clothes. In other words, this is true throughout Jewish history, the way that they grieved, they would go in different seasons of grief, and their grief was actually manifested in the very things they wear. And so David was moving from one stage of grief to the next, and he washed, and he put on his oils, and he put his regular clothes back on. Now do you see part of what Ruth and Naomi are doing? Naomi is not saying, go seduce a man. She's saying, go announce to Boaz and whoever else, your time of mourning is over or at least this season of it. Put your normal clothes back on, get dressed, get ready, go out. I'm sure she wants her to look good, but it's about a shift in her openness to where God might take her in the future. It's not some seduction scene in that part of it. Second thing, let's think about the language for a moment. It is provocative. It is intentionally so, and it's a little bit messy the first thing I want to say is, let's not make these stories into old Brady Bunch episodes or Full House or Fuller House or whatever. It's messy sometimes. And God lets the tension and the complexity stand. At the same time, I think Boaz will make very clear later on that nothing immoral will happen. He'll make that clear. But there is some tension in the moment. Why? I think the writer and the Holy Spirit is trying to tell this story in such a way that we feel the risk that she, she felt when she took the initiative in that moment. He wants us to feel for a moment what it must have been like for Naomi and Ruth in a desperate time to do what they could to take the initiative to provide for themselves in the future. Because think about this. What might have happened to Ruth on that threshing floor that night? What might have happened? Any number of things. She might have been taken advantage of. He might have taken advantage of her in the darkness of the night, and she couldn't have stopped it, probably a powerful man, and nobody would have done anything. Or, or maybe the flip side, right? Maybe what he might have done is, is react in this self-righteous rage and pull her into the middle of the streets and expose her to public shame in order to make himself feel better, much like the Pharisees will do some centuries from this moment in the story of Jesus. 
Or I think the most likely other thing that would have happened other than what happens in the text is the thing that we all fear the most in relationships. Rejection. It's the most likely thing that could have happened that night. She put herself out there and it very easily could have gone a different way. Hold on, you're a foreigner. You're a motorbike. You're part of our historic enemies. Look, I'll give you some grain, but I'm not taking you into my family. Text makes it very clear. She's poor. He's a man of high standing. He's very wealthy. You're not the right social status for me. You're younger than I. Like, couldn't you imagine him saying, hold on, no, forget that. He wouldn't scandalize her. He just would reject her. There was a lot at stake, and I think the writer wants us to feel kind of the risk that was going on in the moment. That doesn't answer all the questions, but it helps us to see Then in the times of our own tension and complexity, we serve a God who actually works in the middle of the night. (laughs) He actually shows up in those places. But I think probably what helps me the most deal with this a little bit is that the confusion and the questions that are there do not nullify the character that shines in this moment. The questions, the confusion, the struggle we have... They don't blot out the character in these two people that we've seen for the last two chapters. It doesn't change. And I want to say there's something about God working in the character of these two simple people that starts to bring a little bit of the light of God's dawn in the middle of the night. See, the story started in darkness. It it takes its kind of main activity literally at midnight. But we don't leave the story without a little bit of hint of dawn coming up. Where does that come from? I think it comes from God working through the character of these people. Look at it this way. We, we keep unpacking this. What, a, what I'm, I'm, I'm trying to point out again and again and again. What is it that makes godly relationships is this character of Hesed. Again, don't go to that slide yet, but we'll get there in a moment. You'll see that word. This character that comes out again and again. We've seen it in previous chapters. But notice it again in this chapter. First of all, Ruth is reaching out to him in a way that is inviting him to marry him. Whatever you do with all the details of the story, what she is doing is a proposal. When she says, spread the cloak, the corner of your garment over me, that is a symbol for a covenant proposal. How do we know that? Well, sometimes you can go look up Ezekiel chapter 16 and verse 8. God uses the exact same metaphor for his covenant relationship with Israel and with the city of Jerusalem. This is what it says. I spread the edge of my cloak over you, Jerusalem. I covered you. I pledged myself to you. And I entered into a covenant with you, says the Lord, and you became mine. See, that's what Ruth is saying. Put your cloak over me. Pledge yourself to me. Make a covenant with me. Make me yours and you mine. She's proposing to him. Now, that's not something women tended to do back then. So she's stepping out there. But it's not a seedy seduction scene. It is a proposal, a bold proposal for a covenant relationship. Now, here's what's amazing. What makes it hesed beyond expectation? She does this, and she is not obligated to marry Boaz. Right? She does this in a way that does bless her, but she's doing this marriage so that it might bless and preserve her whole family line with her mother-in-law. There's no rule or requirement. And Boaz, in fact, is the one that's shocked about it. He says, you're coming and proposing to me? Why don't you go to the younger guys? Why don't you go to the people in your own community? 
other Israelites or even the Moabites. She could have find her, found her security in anybody else. And Boaz says, this Hesed is more amazing than what you've done with your mother. It's amazing to me. She does something she wasn't obligated to do. Here's the other thing to see. Boaz does the same thing. Just like he did with the grain, he goes beyond expectation to eventually, he says, if this other person doesn't work out, we'll see the end of the story, I will accept that proposal and I'll do this. Hear me, he wasn't obligated to do it either. Now I'm going to get technical just for a moment quickly. If I haven't already put you to sleep, you can go to sleep now and then wake up and make the point. But some people like the detail, right? Two Old Testament laws are kind of coming together at work here. We talked about this last time. Isn't it great? Sometimes these things that seem boring are God taking care of us in advance of the need. One of them is in Deuteronomy 25. It's called the law of Leverite marriage. Go impress your friends by saying that. Here's the bottom line. It's just a fancy word for saying God wants to preserve the family bloodline and inheritance. So if you were married and the husband died and you didn't have children yet, uh, the law in Deuteronomy 25 was you marry the brother of your husband. By the way, ladies, you don't just look at your husband. You look at your husband's brother too. You might, you might end up with him. But here's the point. Whatever first child that came from that was the original husband's. And it preserved the bloodline. It preserved the inheritance. God says in the Jewish community that mattered so much. We're going to take care of that. Now that isn't mentioned here, but there's a hint and flavor of it too. Because it's the only part that replies to marriage. What is talked about throughout this text is the Hebrew word goel, G-O-E-L, kinsman redeemer, guardian redeemer, a close relative. Here's, here's the provision throughout the Old Testament. Someone who is a near relative provided for somebody in a time of great loss. Listen to that word, it's important. Their responsibility was to provide for a relative in a time of great loss. So for example, if you lost your property, the goel, redeemer, would buy that property back. If you lost your own freedom, the Goel and Redeemer would buy you back from slavery. In fact, there's even one in there. It's a, not prescribed by God. He actually kind of restrains some of this. But there is a, um, a picture of the Goel. Hadam is what it's called. Doesn't that sound cool? But it's translated as the Avenger. So we're in like a Marvel film now. But there's, there, there's a time in the Old Testament when if somebody killed somebody in your family, the Goel Hadam would go and take vengeance on them. Right? Again, God wasn't prescribing this. He actually gave you places to go hide from the, from the avenger in those situations. Here's the point of all that. Here's the point. Now you can wake back up again. Here's the point. All Boaz had to do, and he wasn't even the first in line to do it, was to provide for them. His responsibility was not to marry her. Let me say that again. His responsibility was to provide, maybe, but not to marry. Both of them go above and beyond. This is Hesed. This is them outshining every opportunity that they had to have in the law. So here's what I want you to see. We've said this all along. Let me say it again. Notice the ripple effect of the Hesed relationships they have. When you go above and beyond what is expected because of the power and the character of God in your life, it has incredible impact that keeps going on and on. Now we've seen it in several different ways. Watch this. This is my favorite part of this scene in the story. Watch how Ruth progresses as a human being throughout the story, in part because she's showing the character of God, but in part here because Boaz serves as a redeemer. Again, all the language we get from Jesus comes from this idea. 
Think about it this way. When she's introduced in the story for the first two chapters, every time they say, they don't just say, here's Ruth. They say, here's Ruth the Moabite. Here's Ruth the foreigner. Here's Ruth from our enemy people, <laughs> right? That word foreigner, by the way, was a used for second class, beneath us kind of people. In fact, it had such a negative connotation. Do you know in the book of Proverbs that when you three, read through that, it is translated as that loose woman that we're all supposed to avoid. And that's how she's described at the beginning of the story. She's that woman. She gets a little bit of elevation here in, in chapter 3 here. She calls herself a servant or a slave, a little above the foreigner she was before. Are you ready for this? Did you see what Boaz called her? Some of you have heard this language before. Take it in. It's powerful. He said, oh my goodness, everybody in town knows that you are a woman of what? Did you catch it? Of noble character. Have you ever heard that before? This isn't him just being kind and being nice and throwing a compliment her way. He just gave her the greatest compliment you could give a woman in Old Testament times. He called her the woman of noble character, a woman of priceless worth. Does anybody know where we've heard that before? Some of you have heard it on Mother's Day sermons. Some of you have heard it in funerals of a woman that's lived a long time and is indescribably wonderful. Here's a way to think about it. Do you know in the Jewish Bible, their order is different than ours? In the Jewish Bible, the book that is right before Luke, Luke, wow, that's right before Ruth is Proverbs. How does the book of Proverbs end? With an entire chapter singing the praises of a woman of what? Noble character. Strong woman. Good business sense. Buys a field. Sells it. Her word is her bond. Incredible honor. And it ends with this thing. Oh, you're beautiful. But oh, your character, your nobility is dazzling, it says. You realize the greatest compliment you give in the Old Testament, by the way, it's still true in some church settings today, greatest compliment you give a woman, she is a Proverbs 31 woman. And that's what he said about Ruth. The one who started is that one we all avoid. It's now become the one that we lift up and celebrate. And that's not just powerful in the whole Old Testament. Do you know that's true in the story itself? Do you realize what, he else, what else he did? This is so amazing. When we are introduced to Boaz in chapter 2, verse 1, do you know what they call him? A man of noble character. A man of high standing, of incredible worth. Do you realize what this guy did? He took this woman who was forgotten, the, the one we avoid, and he lifted her up to the exact same status as himself. When you act with the character of God in your relationships, it redeems human life. When he acted with the character of God here and she acted with the character of God with him, it restored the humanity of the people in the story. Isn't that breathtaking? By the way, it didn't just stop with Ruth. Watch one more ripple effect. So much here. I am going to land the plane. One more thing. It ends with this. He says, by the way, I can't send you home. Did you catch the word he said? I can't send you back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Why does that matter in the story? Because in chapter 1, she came back. She said, don't call me pleasant, which is what my name means. Call me bitter. Why? Because the Lord sent me back empty. Hear me, people. When we take the character of God in so deeply and we live that out, we actually become a representative of God's work to redeem the lives of other people. It wasn't just him saying it. I believe it was God telling her, you're not empty anymore. 
You're not empty. I will provide for you. It's not about Boaz. It's about God. Do you feel that? The power and impact we can have in our relationships can actually redeem and restore the lives of other people. Please don't ever underestimate the power you have in the relationships you have in your life. And it's not because of you. It's because Jesus died, didn't stay dead, and he sent his Holy Spirit to live in y'all and you. Both of them are true. And the power of the Hesed of God will come out in your life if you practice it in your relationships. Watch the impact of that. My favorite example of this in my life, years ago, first church I got to serve in, I started as a student there uh, and ended up being campus minister there for 10 years. It's back in Charlottesville, Virginia. There's a legend in our church. His name is Jimmy White. I would love to show you the picture of him. I just can't find it in my boxes right now. <laughs> Jimmy White's a legend in our church back then. Powerful servant of God, selfless to people, always modeling what it looked like to follow Jesus. And he modeled that. It was so beautiful. He modeled his entire life doing that in spite of an intellectual disability that was very, very severe. He didn't let any of that hold him back. He just modeled the character of Jesus all the time. I would tell Jimmy White stories all the time. We would have these wonderful experiences of him. I'll tell another one some other time. My favorite picture of communion comes from Jimmy as well. But he, he would give us nicknames, by the way. He called me the walking preacher. <laughs> I can't stay still. And he called one of our ministry leaders out one time in the bus. Where he would pick people up, and he would go and pick Jimmy up, and he ran a red light to get to church one time. And he said, call the law. <laughs> Love Jimmy. And then he got cancer, and it was inoperable. And he knew he didn't have a whole lot longer to live. And so my friend Phil did an incredible thing. He went to Jimmy and he said, could you make a list of the things that you'd like to do before you go home and see Jesus? And one by one, Phil went and did that with him. He is a goel. He is a hesed guy. And he just went and, and, and did things on the list. Jimmy loved Legos, so they built a Lego city together. He'd always wanted to ride in a helicopter, so he, he arranged to have a helicopter fly him over the top of the city. And the picture I wish I could show you, again, it's in a box somewhere. A lot of you will appreciate this. Kevin Scow, I don't know if you're in here, but uh, he wanted to go fishing. He wanted to go fishing, man. I got a picture of Jimmy holding up a fish the last time he would ever go. Hey, hear me, Phil didn't do that just to kind of do a couple fun things with him. Listen to me. You know this. Diseases like cancer steal your identity and your humanity. You don't feel like you anymore. And Phil said, a little bit before you go see Jesus, I'm going to give you your humanity back. You're going to be Jimmy again for just a little while. Do you realize you've got that power? The Holy Spirit of God living in you, as crazy and seedy and weird as we can be in our lives, the Holy Spirit of God can come out in you in such a way you give people's dignity back and their humanity back and give a little hint of the dawn of the light of God even in the middle of the night. Father God, that's our prayer. That is our prayer that you so infuse us with the character of your Holy Spirit and your Son, Jesus Christ, that even in our messiness, lives will be impacted in ways we will never know that we will help people be people again ourselves and others by the way that you live out your story in our church and in our lives. We pray this for the glory of Jesus. Amen.